Sometime after Thanksgiving in the year 2007, the writer David Rakoff appeared on the Bat Segudo Show. Mr. Rakoff and our correspondent ended up talking for quite some time, and when the conversation was over, Mr. Rakoff was kind enough to offer turkey leftovers for our intrepid journalist. But 90 minutes is clearly not enough to understand the Rakoff mind, the Rakoff soul, the Rakoff disposition. We therefore offer another hour, nearly four years later, but without secondhand stuffing or abandoned cranberry, to all interested scholars, with the proviso that dictionaries were consulted and phones were unanswered during the course of this conversation. Okay, so I am here once again with David Rakoff, who was most recently the author of Half Empty. David, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. Thank you so much for having me again. And it's again. a pleasure to chat with you again. Yes. Yes. I wanted to, first of all, ask, starting from a very strange vantage point, the writing contest that you depict in the satisfying crunch of dreams underfoot. Yes. Uh, you note that the winner's wife told you that the validation of being a finalist had lifted this winner out of a years-long funk, and that winner was writing again. I'm wondering if you consider your own brief cinematic excursion uh, to be something similar to what that winner was feeling. Uh, you mean that... that, that... The cinematic excursion as described in the essay. The essay, yes. That funk, it began a funk. It's yeah. true. It was the beginning. It was in the inaugural uh, champagne bottle across the ship's prow of yeah. a funk that began with that film. Yeah. It so seemed, it worked in reverse for you. It worked in reverse for me. It, it was one of those things where I thought that I was embarking on an interesting new venture in my life, but in fact, it was the closing of a door. Yeah. Truly, of any kind of real life of myself as an actor yeah. whatsoever. It but was, you do need to have a bunch of pratfalls before you get to where you need to be. Precisely. And it was the first sort of, oh look, a banana peel. I wonder, why, why would anybody leave a perfectly good banana peel here in the middle of the thoroughfare? You know, and then I was yeah. just walking and, and suddenly that began my, my downward slide until such time <laughs> as I managed to extricate myself from my day job and to become an actual writer. Well, the reason I mention this, because it's at the end of that essay, and it made me wonder if you viewed this winner's feeling of validation from afar as somewhat phony or somewhat debilitating, or you identified with that particular feeling. It was neither phony nor debilitating nor a sense of identification. It was, in fact, a sense of one never knows the impact of one's gestures. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There are things that have been done to me and for me yeah. that I will never forget, either for good or bad. And similarly, there are things that I'm sure you've done for people yeah. or to them that they will never forget. And occasionally, someone will tell you. Yeah. And they will come to you years later and tell you how meaningful something that really cost you nothing to yeah. do will really impacted them. And I've had a few of those, and they're among the most gratifying moments in life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Similarly, being able to um, tell someone those things is incredibly moving. So it was one of those moments where it was fascinating to me to realize that I had no concept, and we none of us have any concept, of the things that will have an effect on someone else. And so this, what had been a fairly cynical excursion by the publishing company, you know, means of drumming up interest in an author who had already moved on from us by that time, and she was already making a ton of money, and she didn't care, and the publishing house didn't care, and nobody cared. And we certainly didn't care about this guy who didn't win the contest, and, you know, whatever. I had to make the award out of some Sam Flax, you know, which is a stationary store in New York. I made it on my computer along with, you know, 
dopey arts and crafts supplies from my own drawer. It never occurred to me that it would help him feel good about his writing again. Yeah. So it was, it was an extraordinary moment. And it was just one of those moments where, and you frequently have them regardless of whether they're in creative life or romantic life or just interpersonal life. It's like, wow, I know so little of the world and yeah. other people. I'm wondering in writing that essay, because you're dealing with a feeling of validation that comes from committing a fraud, getting the stationery here. Yes. Or, as you say, uh, a misfired prank in the essay. Uh, it is really interesting to me, I, and it seemed to me when I read your essay that you were at that particular moment still kind of dubious about the fact that this happened, or even uh, sort of feeling a little guilt-ridden. Oh, hugely guilt-ridden. Oh, yeah. Hugely yeah, guilt-ridden. Yeah. And even more so because I was committing it to print. Because yeah. I think that with very little deduction, I think you can find out who the author was, what the movie was, who the publishing house was. Well, sure. I, you know, I, so I, I, think I know that, who they are. <laughs> exactly. You know. So I fear that this guy could read it and feel bad. Um, so there's certainly guilt in going public with that, which is always, in fact, the thing that militates against me writing about my actual life. Yeah. I don't generally write about my actual life. I'm not an, a memoirist for that reason. So usually it's some sort of reified personal experience that I've undertaken in order to have an experience to write about. I don't write about my family, you know. Yeah. But this is actually something that sort of happened to me. So there's a certain guilt in that, and that's always a danger for me. But there is a guilt about the cynicism of that exercise and I still and also because I never heard the guy's yeah. name again I don't think and I don't think I saw his book that's it I don't read terribly widely I'm not one of those terribly well read people I read the New York Times basically and I don't read online a lot so what do I know he may well have published tons of novels and I hope so you could know him for all we know well exactly yeah. do you know what I mean I vaguely remember the name was something like Carcaterra, but it wasn't Carcaterra. Yeah. You know, and I sort of understood what the you book was. You deliberately misremembered. Exactly. Yeah. You know, one of the his names I totally understood, remember very well. But so, I don't know, he's never really surfaced again. And yes, it's always my worry about writing about other people. Yeah. But simultaneously, if you do feel some guilt over this, let's say he had years of happiness. I hope so. I mean, it sounds to me like he did get out of a major funk with this award, some validation. Now, if that I, caused him to move to a point of confidence, and then he perhaps stumbles into your essay, uh, do you think that that moment's really going to cripple him if he no, knows I it don't. was a fraud? Exactly. I don't. And the hope is that the essay is sufficiently, well, first of all, that it's sufficiently well-crafted, that it's an entertaining and effective piece of writing. Yeah. But then also is the attendant thing, like, I would hope that it's sufficiently honest about what I was feeling back then and the grandiosity and sort of self-recriminating to an extent that I would hope that he wouldn't feel bad, that I would at least not played fast and loose with the details yeah. that are his life. Yeah. I don't know. You, you just mentioned that you will not delve into certain aspects of your life when writing these essays. For the most part. For the most part. This leads me to wonder, actually, about Shrimp, the essay in which, yeah. as a child, you report that you have a desire to have a fast track to adulthood. Uh, this led me to wonder if you had even really attempted to view 
this is from the reverse vantage point of you as an adult reporting back to David Rakoff, the child. Okay, here's what it's all about. It's perfectly okay. You 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 say you have a happy happy childhood, but you also have this longing to become an adult very very rapidly. As yes. if, it's a, if it's sort of a, a quick rung up the ladder, that's just not the way life works. Why view it from this kind of linear quality? I mean. Which is interesting because because you often are very digressive in your essays, yes. which I, I I that's I like them. But on this from this vantage point, from child to adult, you're looking at it just only in one direction and not really the reverse. I'm curious why that was, or if you have made attempts to look at it the other way, or is that what where the essay isn't it romantic comes into play? Is that you're kind of you're okay? Well, here's the adult looking back to 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 being a child. I, just to throw wow. some things at you. Okay, let me see if I can parse this into something resembling an answer. Part of the reason that I don't look back, you know, look in reverse, is I... Twofold. I'm really not kidding when I said I didn't enjoy being a child, so I don't really adore remembering that. I'm not comfortable with who I was. I'm a little embarrassed with who I was, so I don't spend a lot of time looking back. And also because I don't generally try to mine my own life. Uh, it feels a little... I'm still not entirely comfortable with what seem to be certain sort of self-mythologizing aspects. Uh, I'm just not comfortable using the, the details of my life. Although it's a somewhat waffling response because this particular book is full of yeah. details about my life and things that are you know, quite personal, I suppose. And possibly the most personal of the three books. Oh, and undoubtedly yeah. the most personal of the three books. Yes, absolutely. Um, but in terms of the forward-looking thing, there is that anxiety that marks whatever phase you're at. And I think it's an anxiety that marks life in general, which is everything takes longer than you hope it's going to. Everything. Everything has to gestate whether it's work, whether it's creativity, whether it's just having people in the world know who you are and therefore throw work your way, it's always, everything takes longer. Certain recipes where the, you know, congealing of albumin in an egg when you apply heat, you know, that takes the number of minutes that it takes. Everything else takes longer than they say it's going to take. It's going to take years to pay your dues, to get out of a job, whatever. So it's that source of tension which is that nobody wants to wait that long. You know, nobody wants to really put in the time, and everybody hopes to be ushered past the velvet ropes or somehow upgraded on the great flight um, to business class without having deserved it in any way. That's a constant tension, not just among me, but I think among every person alive, and every child wants to be suddenly older. I suppose both essays are an attempt to both make sense of that and also to if they are speaking to those younger people, to say, it'll be okay. Yeah. You know, this, this period shall pass, and you will look back, at, look back upon it not fondly, because that would just be a little nostalgic and kind of unrealistic, but at least with some kind of peace. You know, and I no longer quite begrudge myself those feelings embarrassing, though they may have been. Yeah. You know. But not wanting to look back, I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons why your sentences, and, and even more so with this book, are so ornate and modifier-heavy and very 
phrase happy. I am phrase happy. Uh, that's that's a lovely like sort of, expression. Yeah, I've yes. never heard that. Well, Thank I, you. I, one that just occurred to me. But, it's uh, so good. But, but if this almost serves as a kind of insulating mechanism so that if you are going back to your yourself, you're doing so in such an idiosyncratic way as to not have a direct kind of... Oh, that's but, interesting. Put, 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 putting your... your nib into your vein and letting the blood flow onto the page which is you know what is often said I, about writing yes it's true i guess though that being phrase happy is just inevitable it's the way that one moves through the world mm-hmm. you know it's the way one looks at things is the way one speaks about things or rather the way i speak about things you know conversation and talking is my favorite thing it's it's my meat you know so phrase happy is inevitable it's interesting to me that you would maybe see it as a kind of mediating or obfuscating screen because I see it as the opposite, as a way of actually getting at the exact nature of something. Because a reluctance to look back is not the same thing as not looking back. One can not help but look back. You know, it's inevitable and it's not really in my control. So in so much as I've chosen to in certain places, the best I can hope to do is to do so in an accurate and evocative manner so that someone that I've taken along with me, i.e. the reader, would sort of feel like, oh, I totally get what you mean. That seems very vivid to me, and I completely understand what kind of house this was, what kind of experience that was, or something. Um, But no, I I don't think of the barrage, you know, that huge wave of verbal diarrhea which is the way I both speak and write as being a mediating factor I I think of them as being closer to the the nib in the vein yeah well I, I think maybe it could be both words can both insulate and also sort of be the telltale indicator to the reader hey if you want to go down my journey with me you're gonna have to wend through my Conscious sure. patterns, you know? Sure. I, I think that's, that's, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just the, the way that you are introspective on the page, perhaps. Precisely. And yeah. in life. I'm not one of those, I'm not one of those minimal guy speakers or writers. Yeah. I like words. It's just like having a lot of spices in my kitchen. I just, I like having access to all that stuff. Yeah. Well, this also leads me to wonder, because you do bring up words in the capacity for wonder, uh, you report your concern for bad neologisms, uh, particularly those that are muffled on lexical blending, uh, words like innovation or oh, snackatizer yeah. <laughs> or appetizers. In your words, it makes one suspicious, wondering about the ways in which the object in question is found so wanting, so insufficiently innovative, lacking in invention to warrant this linguistic boost. I'm wondering, do you greet all words, all language of some level of skepticism or suspicion, what does it take for you to trust a word? Oh, what does it take for me to trust a word? First of all, I have to know what it means. And (laughs) there are a lot of words that as often as I pack my ear with them and look them up all the time, I can't get them. I've even said this in an interview. There's one word, vitiate, which either means... It was our interview. We talked about vitiate last time. It's so funny. And And then I even... Vish, I've still not gotten... And I said it again in another interview yeah. with someone else because I still can't get into my head. Yeah. It either means to it's strengthen or to weaken drive. an argument. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. one does it mean? No, I thought vitiate means to... to strengthen to, a... to dry, like... Vi- no, 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 no. Because you're, you're vitiated, you're, you're, your energy forces are... No, it means to either strengthen an argument or weaken an argument, 
Well, it vitiates one's argument. Oh, in, in rhetoric, that is. I don't know. Well, in the okay. dictionary. Shall I look it up? <laughs> we may as well. Okay. Because I, all my stuff is in storage. So oh, or oh, uh, I could even... <laughs> here, wait. I can do it like here on the internet. <laughs> I was going to suggest... The, I got a netbook on me, too. Um, okay. Generally, I use a... Is this picking up on the thing, you think? I think it's picking up we, on we the could, thing? Yeah, I think it's going to pick. I can oh, boost okay. it or something like this. We'll get this, get this moment or I'll... I'll I thought it was to wither. No, I don't think so. Right. Okay. Vitiate. Yeah, to impair the quality, to make faulty spoils, to impair, to weaken. That's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Pervert. Interesting. Well, do you want to answer? Well, I can stop this one. No, no, no. Here. Okay. I'll, I'll let her pick. Okay. Machine pick up. So, anyway. Now that we have used the internet to confirm what this word is, yes. uh, so, both of us are kind of coming at it slightly wrong. I drew my attention to the weakening aspect of the word, and you drew your attention to the rhetorical quality of the word. Yeah, to ruin one's argument. Yes, to, yeah. yeah, yeah, so it's the same. Um, we have the same idea here. We're close, but not both of us are imprecise. So maybe the word is, I mean, I don't know what that, I don't know what that says about us or what the word. It's, uh, I think we are close. I think we both get the, uh, sort of, but it's funny that he, Jesus, even five years later. No, it's, um, do I view language with distrust? Skepticism or suspicion. Or skepticism or suspicion. It would have to depend upon the source. There are certain scenarios and situations where I am being spoken to, and yes, my immediate homeostatic state is one of skepticism. Like if I'm in an audience and there's someone in power speaking, I can't help it. I'm immediately somehow not the personification of good faith. Yeah. Which is not to say that I'm such a iconoclast, you know, authority questioning. I'm a, I'm a big rule follower. I'm, I'm ultimately, you know... A very nice Canadian boy. But there are points where, yes, I do greet language with skepticism. But for the most part, I think for the, for the very much most part, I like language so much that generally I greet language the way I might greet a warm bath. Mm-hmm. It calms me right down. Verbal solutions to... Problems, whether they're dramatic problems or rhetorical problems or problems of communication, I very I like talking. I like hearing talking. I like words in general. So no, I would say that in fact, skepticism is the opposite. I think I can be a, quite a credulous language lover. So, so because you heard it at that particular time, intervention, which you immediately imparted some corporate. Semantics it's, here. That's I mean, the thing. This is this was interesting because it was like not only was the word bad, but it was like some evil corporate word. And Precisely. That, that's that's that's. It was that's a word by yeah. committee. Yeah. And it was also a combination of two very good words. Yeah. Invention, innovation, terrific words yeah. that mean something. And they sound good. Exactly. And innovation sounds terrible. Exactly. It's like I don't even you know. It's like why you would bother to debauch both words yeah. when both really mean something. That's like proscribe. I always didn't care for that word that much. Proscribe. Pro- prescribe I like, but proscribe, you know... It's, it's sort of almost the opposite. It's yeah. to set up uh, forbidden boundaries, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Proscription, that's right. But it's innovation. It felt idiotic. It's like cheese with the Z and all that stuff. It yeah. just felt 
meaningless and needless and did yes it raised my hackles it made yeah. me very very skeptical yeah when it didn't have to yeah you know anybody who invented anybody who came up with you know snow white and the seven dwarfs is really okay in my book from the get-go from jump street on you know i'm on the bus already so it didn't need that yeah it was funny it's interesting so well there are two things that come into my mind one this discussion bring brings up the inevitable tangent or segue into Orwell's politics of the English language. Oh, which, I don't uh, know that. Uh, I'm an idiot. Oh, you, you ha- oh no, I'm no, actually, so poorly you're read. working along similar terrain here. So let's do away with that and actually discuss this. No, or- tell me what you were going to say well, about Orwell. No, I, I was actually just thinking because it's interesting that you, um, that it's a person speaking a word, you have less faith in that person. I'm wondering, does it depend on the type of person also who's oh, saying Oh, it entirely something? depends. No, I yeah. generally have faith in people speaking oh, a word. Okay. It's just generally like someone on a, on, a, on a dais or a lectern or what? No, it's more sort of like if it's like a corporate mouthpiece in a red yeah. blazer. Okay. You know, he's tremendously excited about something. That kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's what I mean by being suspicious. Yeah. That suspicious use of language. But no, generally when people speak to me, I'm, I take it so seriously. You know, I, I, I love speaking myself so much. and I'm, I've been so much the recipient of goodwill of people listening to me that I, I do take it somewhat seriously. So I guess, uh, but no, it's when it's fake language. I don't like fake language. Yeah. I wanted to also ask you just about judgment in general, going back to what we were talking about earlier about the writing contest winner. This leads me to also ask you about I Feel Dirty, where you covered or went to the exotic erotic ball yes. in New York um, and, and realized it wasn't a particularly good time, at least for you. This leads me to ask you, just because we're on the subject of judgment, whether it is fair to go ahead and, and judge something that you may not feel uh, that is, ha- is, is, is happening. But that guy who you noticed who was like, thought that every single thing that he saw was amazing, you know? I mean, what, Yes, for him it was an erotic yeah. culmination. Yeah. I would hope that the essay somehow did its job of drawing that distinction of saying that this isn't necessarily for me, but for some people it was okay. But I guess you're right. There was a certain judgmentalism of how deeply middle-brow and borderline misogynist yeah. and hugely homophobic the whole play, place turned out to be. And you're right. I, I did sit in judgment in that way. But I also sort of hoped that that essay... And the book in general had a kind of live and let live unscoldy quality, but perhaps I wasn't successful in that. I mean, whatever floats your boat, absolutely. That said, I think we can pretty well agree that uh, it's not just a cultural nicety to say that something is either misogynistic or homophobic or, you know, retrograde in its attitudes towards women or something like that. I think... I think I'm kind of allowed to say that sort of thing. Um, whether or not it gives someone erotic pleasure is an entirely separate thing, I think. Yeah. Um, well, the trick here is, is how do you insert your own innate judgment, which is going to come, sure, no matter what you do, into an essay in which you're trying to do this sort of verbal canvas of, of, of this... Yes, just yeah, reportage. Yeah. And I'm also at a disadvantage because I will not write about my own yeah. sex life yeah. or my own desire. I mean, I'm gay, obviously, and I'm, you know, not, I make no bones about that. 
but I, I'm not going to write about the things that turn me on or my own sex life or my own romantic life. So you're right. There's a, there's a double remove there. I mean, it also makes me wonder, Dark Meat, this uh, yeah. essay that also explores the joys that come from hypocrisy or duplicity or Transgression, deceit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, but, but you write that about Jews who eat pork, and, and you say that you almost never feel more Jewish than in that moment just before I'm about to eat pork, and you associate that instant with the breaking of a glass at a Jewish wedding. So I'm wondering if your sense of identity here is predicated upon deceit. How do you come to terms with it? But I wasn't deceiving anybody. I was an observer, but I was certainly not in any way pretending to be a participant. My notebook was out the entire time. Believe me, in that situation, okay. anybody so who saw me... we're talking two different situations. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And at the erotic ball, no one could have you were failed an observer. Yeah, to spectator. see me as a deeply uninterested reporter. You know what I mean? I looked gay um, just in all my signifiers. I looked completely uninterested. And I was completely uninterested in that way. And I had my... Truly, as I said, my notebook and my pen were out the entire time, and anybody looking at me knew that to yeah. be the case. I was in no way a participant observer. Yeah. But with Dark Meat, this is a part of who you are. Yes. And, and it is predicated upon deceit. Therefore, Deceit? Yeah, because you're supposed to not eat it, and you're, you're feeling that joy. You're feeling the, for, the, the, the taste of the forbidden there. Yes, but it's, it's not so much deceit as it is a kind of normalized and normative transgression, mm -hmm. that I'm part of a larger... You're a popular guy these days. <laughs> no, it's this time of... Oh, it's, it's literally for the primaries on Tuesday. Oh. I've been getting so many of those calls from, like, Carol Maloney's office. Yeah. So annoying. Yeah. Um, Tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank goodness I didn't give him my number. <laughs> oh, I know. It's terrible. It's when you register to vote. It's a... Um, but, you know, I'm part of a, an absolutely normative tradition of transgressors, of wholly Jewish-identifying secular Jews who happily and proudly eat pork. So it's not so much deceit anymore, because it's, it's at least a century and a half in the making. We're, yeah. we're no longer a terribly new uh, iteration of secular Judaism. But it is transgression. But I'm not deceiving anybody because I, again... I don't wear a yarmulke, I don't have earlocks, I don't, you know, it's, um, I'm just another kind of Jew, but I'm emphatically a Jew. Yeah. You know, even as the pork happily goes into my mouth. Yes. Um, over and over again. So it's, uh, so I would, I would rather say deceit rather, transgression rather than deceit, I guess. Yeah. I also wanted to tie the skepticism question in with that awkward social moment with Tom Atkins's daughter. Uh, oh, God. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if, if some of the kind of skepticism has to do with not being able to detect the cues, or in this case, not being able to detect the strange curveballs that life throws. Well, here's the thing. I am generally flawless at that sort of stuff. I'm yeah. generally... A socially very my my manners generally tend to be not just good but extremely good. Oh yeah. Do you know no, what I mean? I, I, I vouch for that. You offered me everything under the sun well, exactly. before we even Do you know what I mean? Rolling. So yeah, I, exactly. I really sort of pride myself yeah. on a certain capacity for social appropriateness. Sure. Um, and just being a polite fellow and sort of a reliable fellow. So it was one of those moments where, yes, I I was on my guard as you say, and because of the language coming at me was 
from underneath the Disney umbrella. And because I was in a corporate setting, mm-hmm. yes, everything struck me as being suspect. Yeah. And it absolutely manifested in me just eating a plate of dicks. At that moment, I just <laughs> fucked up so badly. This guy saying, like, literally leading me into a, a kitchen of his own design. I mean, everything on the walls. He was like, that's yeah. from my house. That's my kids made that. That's literally someone saying, like, this is everything about me. And it's like, hey, look at this picture of this little girl. And I said, that whore? And it's like, of course it's going to be his daughter. But for some reason, I had a mini stroke at that moment and completely forgot about it. And for that, I blame myself. But I blame myself because I was clearly in a corporate environment yeah. under the Disney umbrella in their dream home. And I just I just fucked up so bad. So, so it seems to me that you're more likely to make a misstep if your skepticism tendrils are yes. up. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. How do you deal with this... I, it seems to me discomfort with the unpredictable in life. Uh, how does anyone deal with the discomfort with the unpredictable? You, well, I mean, it's from like the first essay. You try to envision those worst case scenarios before they come up and you work your way through them so that you never do say your daughter's a whore to somebody who's just shown you a picture of them. Um, and you learn for the next time. And so. One does learn as one grows up to say things or to preface things like saying, I'm sorry, is so-and-so a friend of yours? Yeah. And then you don't proceed with the, you know. Um, but occasionally there will be missteps, and that was one of them. To go back to the essay, Isn't It Romantic? Yes. Uh, I mean, we haven't even really talked about the big crux of that essay, which is this really interesting assault on rent. Uh, you point out the characters do nothing to demonstrate that they are creative and that their chant not to pay rent is largely futile or pointless as a result. Well, exactly. Or, yeah. And unearned. Yes. Entirely unearned. Unearned. Yes. But I'm wondering, why do you think Jonathan Larson looked down on the audience and offered this particular approach? Did, do you think that he believed that the only way he was able to understand this bohemian myth was through this kind of spoon-feeding, this kind of... Uh, X equals Y or X does not equal Y nonsense that any of us toiling in this creative field know is completely bullshit. I don't necessarily know that he looked down on the audience. And of course, tragically, he died. So we'll 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 actually never know. know. Exactly. Unless we we contact the people at the diner. (laughs) So it just seems, uh, I think it's more a matter of how do you convey such a thing dramatically on stage so that it's compelling and not dull. Yeah. I mean, watching someone, well, watching someone masturbate furiously a few times a day can have its charms, but generally, watching someone in the throes of the creative process has some very hackneyed modes of being expressed. You know, the writer who tears the paper from the platen and throws it behind him, and you see the wastebasket full of crumpled paper. So I think that he had some choices that he had to make. And I think that it wasn't necessarily a contempt for the audience, but a kind of a limited way of conveying what it is to be creative to an audience and have that audience still be engaged. Also, it's a very hearty cultural myth that being creative goes hand in hand with a kind of carnal northern light washed garret with drop cloths and nude people and booze bottles and yeah. just fun abandon and more fun than going to a job every day more fun than punching a clock I think that just exists as a very very handy 
and well-worn, an extremely durable cultural myth. Yeah. So, in a way, I'm blaming him for something that he's really not to be blamed for. That's more endemic of all narratives. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time, it did come bundled up with this defiant sort of immunity to the vicissitudes of taking responsibility for oneself or actually just doing one's fucking work. And the fact that that was a football that had been run with so widely and so efficiently to really the detriment, I think, of people doing their work. Yeah. Especially in the age of reality television where you can literally just let a camera expose footage of you and you can leave it up to producers who will then create you and your so-called creative work. Or even the image of the Williamsburg hipster who now, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, a hipster or even a slacker was an entirely different thing. They actually did have some corresponding set of virtues, perhaps their own version of the Protestant work ethic with which they toiled, and they were really, you wanted them to succeed. But to do absolutely nothing and to, on top of that, have no indication of upper body strength, to me, yeah, it just seems also, I'm, I'm suspect. Exactly, and to sort of have no... Also, body of work to show for yeah. yourself and somehow still be validated. No body for... in general. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it just seemed, it seemed like one of those myths that was not just, didn't just sort of get my goat, but it actually struck me as being dangerous because what it does is that it goes to the very heart of dismantling the importance and primacy of work. Sure. It's very important to work. Yeah. That's why leisure is so languorous and lovely to have because it's in contrast to one's work. You know, and work is tremendously rewarding. And when it no longer needs to exist in order to exist, that seemed, that seemed dangerous to me. But on the other hand, to your own work ethic is interesting because only three books, man. I know. <laughs> yes, I mean, no, it's a very I'm slow not, process. I'm not prolific. Yeah. I'm not yeah. prolific. But that said, I also don't then tweet about it and when I'm not promoting a book I don't sort of go out every night and show my face in public either yeah do you know what I mean there's, yeah. there's real embarrassment about that I don't I'm not one I'm not a ubiquitous New Yorker no no well, I mean, we're I'm, talking in your home right yes now. yes yes, yeah, yes. Exactly. You know, exactly you know what I mean I don't <laughs> yeah. I don't sort of go out and give public readings when I feel that I've read a piece too many times I don't yeah I take myself and I go I go away again you know when to pull the plug and I hope so. do some do some serious work that's but, my but you like to perform, though, on the other I hand, too. Performing. So how do you balance that ratio? It's hard to say. You have to... Uh, one, the hope is that I've got a fairly well-developed bush, bullshit detector. I don't know if that's true. It's not for me to say. Yeah. There could be a listener right now who said, ah, I saw you read the same fucking piece three times, you fucking hack. I have no idea. Again, it's not for me to say, but I can only try my hardest. Going back, to, I mean, since we're talking about corresponding sets of virtues, going back to the isn't it romantic conundrum, uh, you write lying flat against the tile of the kitchen floor listening to someone else have sex. It's essentially my early 20s in a nutshell. Now, a theatrical show of a guy doing this, a musical, it's going to be a hard sell. So what do you think is the narrative answer for that genuine or authentic presentation? <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that would I construct an entire show again around that one phrase? the guy with his phrase? <laughs> Not particularly, no. I would, um, no, but if you could, for example, peel back the front walls of, say, all the houses in a neighborhood where everybody was engaged in their 
pursuits, whether they were creative or quotidian or whatever, that's always fun. Yeah. And if you could do it in a way that was eloquent and accurate, I think that could be fun to see. Very Beckett-like, that. Yes, and it's always fun. I, I love things where they, where they cut away and you get to see the inner workings of something. So that could work, maybe. You write, I love a hug as much as the next guy, but I need a context of familiarity, some reason to believe that said hug is meant for me specifically. I'm wondering, why overthink a gesture like that? I mean, has it been like this for you your entire life? Yes. Not every physical gesture is going to require an explanation. No, no, not every physical yeah. gesture, but you know that something that is proffered to everybody is essentially proffered to nobody. Yeah. That's all I mean. Yeah. I once got to fly business class somewhere. Only once? Yeah, basically. I think so, yeah. Have you, have you flown often? Yeah, I fly a lot. Yeah, okay. But I'm, no, I'm a completely economy... That sort of surprises you a little, doesn't <laughs> no, it? No, no, I mean... It, it, I mean, no, it, I mean, it makes sense, but it seems that you would be flown around for some... I don't know. I, I don't know what your... What your, your the, yeah. the things that haven't come to fruition is, but, you know, it seems to me that you would have, you know, a few more than just one. Maybe three or four. No, maybe two. Okay. But certainly not four. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I mean, that's the thing. And I, I completely understand why I would seem to be the person who would have more of that. I understand yeah. that there are things about my physical and verbal yeah. presentation, and there are also absolute realities of the outward attributes of what my career appears sure. to be of like. Of course, of course. I, I totally get that. But no, I'm... It doesn't manifest itself. It doesn't result in business class airfare, yeah. I assure you. That George Bernard Shaw quote about success, that success, um, I'm going to see if I can remember this correctly, but you know, one's success, something about success and perception, where uh, one's success inside is not ne nearly the same as the success that other people's perceive. Something exactly. I'm mangling, Precisely, paraphrasing, but yeah. But that's basically. exactly yeah, it. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm, I, I fly economy. Sure. I get flown economy. So I once got flown business class and the air steward, the flight attendant, the male flight attendant, came up and said, hi, I just wanted to introduce myself to you. It's been so busy, you know, and uh, getting ready for the flight. I just, and it made me not want to see you. And maybe not able to come and see you and say, hello. And he was so beautiful. And he was doing it to everybody. And it yeah. seemed so, it made me feel much lonelier and less attractive than if he had simply ignored me. Do you know what I mean? And the fact that he did the same presentation for everybody, and attempting so, to use it as special, but then it turns out to be sort of a rubber stamp approach precisely, to and he's so people. clearly yeah. physically out of my league, and it has only to do with the fact that I was given this seat. And yeah. it was just one of these things where it's like, now, I don't really now I know need. Why you don't fly business class. Well, do you know what I mean? It's like I don't need that. I didn't yeah, need yeah, it. Yeah. It only made rendered me feeling more of a schmuck. Sure. So similarly, a hug that everybody's getting doesn't mean anything. You know, I just sure. need, I need the, to know that it's somehow coming my way for a reason. Yeah. It comes with those same corporate identifications. That Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah. I mean, I can appreciate things to a certain level. Sure. To a certain extent, I got to see him. He was very nice to me. He was super handsome. A hug feels good. But I'm not going to fully incredulously take it on. I was like, wow, I just got hugged. Or wasn't that guy so nice to me? Yeah. David Rakoff. And it's like, no, he wasn't nice to you, David Rakoff. He was nice to yeah. seat number, you know, 4A. So yeah. Yeah. Um, that's all I mean. Well, on some level, 
and particularly in our Facebook and Twitter age, which didn't really exist when we last talked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that kind of uniformity. I, I, I see this now all the time when people introduce themselves and they say, I follow you on Twitter, as if that means something. What does that mean? Is, is that, it's, weirder than, it's weirder than I read your essay or I read your blog post. It's like, I follow your 140 character <laughs> little But at the same messages. time, clearly you yeah. tweet yeah. in order to garner precisely that response yes, of someone yes. saying, I follow you. It's funny you say that about Facebook because I have a Facebook profile, obviously, yeah. but I don't post anything. I've never posted anything. I don't, I don't do anything with it. But the one requirement that I have for people to be my friend is they have to at least say something to yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. That's all I need is like some reason as to why they're asking to be my friend. That's it. But if it's anonymous and I don't know them, I just, I don't bother because it's like, no. Pressing I a button is not exactly. an I just act need, of friendship. <laughs> I just need that one thing like, hey, I know who you are. That's it. Or, 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 I, or we you know did, people in common. Or. I had this happen to me the other day. It's kind of related to this where, where there was a woman who looked up at me at the Brooklyn Book Fest. Yeah. And she was tweeting something or emailing something. And then I looked up to her and then she ran away. And I don't know. Oh. And, I, and, I, and I actually then followed her to see if I knew her. And, I, and then I lost her. But I, I was like... Who is this person? Why couldn't you just come up to me and say hello? Why That's couldn't you just offer? I mean, this is this is this is That's the culture we're now living in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, I went, I took myself to Paris for my fortieth, five, almost six years ago. Yeah. And watching people in the museums with their phones. So this is the phone. You're the painting. Mm-hmm. Take the picture. Move away. Never. Never once. seeing it. Yeah. Literally never once, and I just thought, oh god. Documenting it instead of experiencing. It's it. also there's a gift shop. Yeah. With postcards yeah. um but also one just look at the painting once yeah just once yeah it drove me crazy that's such a it's such a that's such a pathetic little um observation on my but that's that was my little andy rooney moment forgive me <laughs> that's okay I, i'm getting there myself <laughs> um i wanted to actually talk about uh in the bleak shall inherit you write about your efforts to interview uh, Julie Norum yes. for an article in relation to her views of defensive pessimism, which is different from dispositional pessimism because you actually have to pessimistically break down what has just occurred and then come up with a list of possible responses or results in relation right. to that instead of immediately declaring it just, oh, it's absolutely terrible, it's gloomy and the like. Um, you ended up experiencing difficulty, in your words, to tease the anxious and sad strands apart. Yes. Um, and you eventually didn't write this piece, although you did write this essay. I'm wondering if it is your view that defensive pessimism looks very good on paper, but is possibly just inapplicable to the way we experience things. It seems, it seems uh, fitting in light of what we were just were talking about there. No, on the contrary. Uh-huh. I'm going to crack the window. Sure. No, on the contrary. I think defensive pessimism is not just uh, applicable in real life, but in fact is inevitable. It, people simply are defensive pessimists uh, by birth. And, peop- and other defensive pessimists are made, certainly, by just life experience. But I think that it's in fact incredibly useful and as inevitable as having brown eyes. It's a way of claiming agency in the world. It's you look at something and you think, oh, this is going to be a fucking disaster. 
so how do I get through this fucking disaster? And you think, okay, it's a public speech. I hate making public speeches. I'm going to make sure that I practice it three times. And then I'm going to make sure that I don't trip over the cord. And I'm going to make sure that I have breath mints. And I'm going to make sure that I, you know, evacuated my bowels. And I'm going to make sure not to eat something spicy the night before. And that's the way most people who aren't supremely optimistic just sort of move through life. And of course, you and I live in New York City. We're part of a huge self-selecting group of millions and millions of people who that is the way you get through life. Even though I don't know you, I'm just guessing and I think I'm right. Am I not right? Yes, but I'm actually an optimist. I would, I would describe myself as an optimistic realist in the sense that I know that everything is going to work out, but I, I like to be able to anticipate what might happen if I can, but also keep myself open to a curveball or an unexpected thing. Like that, if I, if I didn't keep myself open, I would never have experienced that strange woman with you know, tweeting or doing whatever behind me. That to me is just fascinating stuff. Entirely and, and, true. And, and, and I'm optimistic that it was not really intended with malice, even though I do view it with Sure, suspicion. you don't, yeah, you don't yeah. see the world as malign and dark. Yeah, exactly. But the fact that you can identify curveballs sure. and requiring of contingency thinking, well, that I, actually is the mark, the cognitive mark of a not an optimist. Because it... No, no I'm, I'm no, quite... No. I mean, oh. I'm being strictly... Yeah. Uh, strictly uh, as classifications huh. in terms of broad-based thinking versus more narrow thinking. Pessimism narrows thinking. It's about, it's about detail. Yeah, being detail oriented, and optimism is a more broad-based thing, thought pattern. Uh, so it doesn't mean that you're without hope. And I, I think obviously yeah. also it exists as a continuum as opposed to a yeah, yeah. Sides I, I, of a I, coin. I think I think the terms of this might even, in fact even be too narrow just to point exactly. just to be in defense of my optimism here or too broad. broad. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and I also think that they exist on different indices yeah. and stuff like that. But but yes, but your realism, your very realism is could also be described as being. Uh, not on the optimistic spectrum. Yes, that's what. But I mean. but I'm not. If if I were a complete pessimist, I would let truth and realism completely bring me down. Sure. And I, I cannot. I just don't. I don't have the ability to live with that. Kind no, of and you know something. Outlook. Nor I mean, do I entirely. Yeah. yeah. Although. So, so we're actually. Somewhat. I think kind of. We're not dissimilar. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's the thing. I'm not a complete pessimist. I'm not really all that optimistic, although there are things about which I am decidedly optimistic. Sure. Um, my own survival, you know. Yeah, of uh, course. Is, I turn out to be quite optimistic about that. Yeah. But, uh, this has been a very optimistic conversation, I would say. <laughs> here's hoping, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, or a very, you know, a very uh, jocular one, I would say. Yes. So, so I think that, Entirely. that it's, it's certainly not the mark of a man who, who did receive that, that diagnosis, too. No, and it's not, it's not entirely, that's the thing. And it's not about being sad. It's different. And I couldn't, at the time of the initial writing of the essay, understand why, how I could tease those strands apart. It was a lot of science that I couldn't do. Yeah. Um, also, because it was writing, because it was writing, it was very scary, and it was a big piece, and every piece, everything feels like an audition. It never gets easier. Yeah. In yeah, that way. Writing, as you say, never gets easier. Never. But dwelling upon the personal with that last essay... The last essay. In the, the last book. essay. Why go for broke? I mean, particularly after what you wrote earlier in the book about <laughs> I had a happy childhood. You know, I'm pretty boring. My book sales attest to that fact. Now here you have the the great grand experience of finally being able to go ahead and be marketable. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why why did you make that leap with this? I mean, I you know. And why I, did I put it in? Yeah. Why why did you put? I mean, in, in closing with that too. 
I suppose. I mean, I really felt sad after after reading. That. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. I mean, I I'm glad to be talking to you now. I'm Good. glad that things are. I think. I mean, that's maybe one of the reasons I think I wanted to talk yeah, to you. Yeah. Reading that last essay. You it's, okay, uh, man? <laughs> well, it seemed. Well, here's the thing. It seemed. If you were writing a book about pessimism, melancholy, negative emotion, and their uses in life, their innate value neutrality, and you were trying to defend them in the larger context of a culture that was trying to expunge them from the conversation so that people couldn't just not feel them with some kind of value neutral uh, you know, entitlement, but they weren't even allowed to talk about them. So if you were writing that kind of book, that was not a piece of campaign literature and it wasn't a polemic and you weren't scolding people, but you were writing that kind of book. And then you yourself became ill with a life-threatening disease, surely you would somehow document your trajectory through that disease. Yeah. I mean, it's just inevitable. Yeah. You can't not write about it. Precisely. Would I rather not have had the experience and not such a nice little chapter to round out the book with such, you know, shocking symmetry? Yeah. Sure. Would you rather have not written that essay? No, I'm glad I wrote the essay. I'd rather not have had the experience. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. but no, in as much as I had the experience, I'm extremely glad that I wrote the essay. And just so listeners here can know, you are all right. You're I on, seem you're to be fine. I'm on chemotherapy okay. now, and I'm doing okay. And, you know, it seems to be, I, I just hope it works. Um, but yeah, the, the writing the essay was a strange experience. I'll certainly never read it again Yeah. and I'll never read it publicly. There's um, a reason to go see you live. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll never, that'll never happen. Alas. But it's, uh, it, uh, yeah, it seemed, it seemed not to write it would be coy in a way. So in a certain way. You're, you're subscribing to those expectations that are that are that are required for something like this. You can't not write it. You're happy having written it. Therefore, I, I'm not going to say that this is your own personal answer to innovation, but right. but it does. It is interesting in light of of the skepticism we were talking about earlier. How do you mean? In the sense that you are putting the expected coda in this oh. in this collection instead of. I mean, that could have been the first essay. We don't, you know, it, it could have worked out. It could have been arranged in the middle of the book. It but could have it been, should, but it's yeah. really, but it's really the sort of where it's me putting my money where my mouth is. And also it is a coda. It couldn't be the beginning because it really is a coda in that it is, uh, at least in part, the illustration of, yeah, you can actually be anxious and happy at the same time, that they are different. And... Yeah, there would be no there would be no way that one could write a book of essays where one is a first written in the first person that are about negative emotion and melancholy and pessimism without it. I mean, that would just be insane. Yeah. Uh, right? Yeah, it would. <laughs> but I also didn't want to make too much of a meal out of it, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh and I hope never to have to make more of a meal out of it than what I said. I'd love it to be a I'd love it to be a distant memory fairly soon so that here's hoping on that level of optimism <laughs> David thanks so much it was a pleasure thank chatting you with very you. very much thank you hope to talk to you again yes <laughs> me too <laughs> yeah. wow.